Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hello, folks, and welcome, as always, to Sex, Love, and Addiction, our incredibly brilliant podcast. And just in case you didn't know, we just passed 1.3 million downloads. So thank you so much for joining us. And I am getting the sense that this is helpful for you folks, and that is a gift to me and to everyone who is in recovery. So I have a really special, important guest, in my opinion, to uh, for us today. And this is a woman by the name of Lucy Beresford. And uh, she is a superpower. She is a superpower. I want to start off with the fact that she did a TED Talk, and I think you'll be interested in the topic, called Infidelity to Stay or Go. I have to tell you what it says on her site. It says, my superpower is that an analysis of relationships informs everything I do. The situation may be helping a therapy patient thrive after a crisis, which is really the focus of what we're working on. She's an experienced live broadcaster and an award-winning writer published across four continents, the host of a successful weekly chat show, hashtag Mind Over Matter Mondays, founder of the award-winning Kindness Club, and an award-winning UKCP registered psychotherapist. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me. It is such an honor to speak with you, um, not only because you've written about the population of uh, people surviving infidelity and relationships, but you're also a novelist. And to me, that is uh, many, many evenings of not spending time with your family and not enjoying weekends with friends because you're sitting at home writing. So I give you lots of kudos for losing some of your life to helping all of us with your writing. So thank you for that. Well, in a way, it was a gift for me because I got to write about... I, I got to explore some themes that are really important to me around finding a voice and I needed to find a writing voice. But actually, I think when when readers are reading and they find something that resonates for them, they feel like someone's heard them as well. And there's so much about your work and my work, which is very much about giving people the chance to feel heard. So the pleasure was mine, really. Well, actually, when you speak about this, and we'll get into the issues in a moment, I don't really think of, and I should more often, as writing novels and fiction, being a way to reach people about topics and issues that they have trouble talking about, or they would have trouble picking up a book on infidelity or on broken relationships, but they can read a novel. And you can put your ideas and your beliefs through in those words in ways you couldn't in nonfiction. And I think, well, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> so I want to give you kudos for that piece as well, because I think when we write, our voice comes through with a piece of the work that we've done and the work that we do. I know that a lot of your work is about finding your voice, finding really your place from which you are uh, the platform from which you uh, evolve your life. And I wonder why that and what does it mean to find your voice? I've observed that anyone working in these kinds of professions uses their own experience as as something that really drives them. You can only really work with great passion and with great conviction when it really means something to you. And I know that there was a time in my life where I had lost my voice, not that I realized it at the time, but I I did work in financial services. I had 
an awesome time. I mean, I, I got to travel the world and I worked with really stimulating people, but I wasn't really me. And I didn't really know how to show up for myself authentically. And I, and that took me into therapy and, and I remember thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. I can talk about myself every week. And that was possibly the first clue that I hadn't really been hearing my own voice for a very long time. And the big changes in my life have only really happened when I have been true to myself. But to go back to that uh, novel writing experience, and one of the most extraordinary things that happened to me when my first novel came out, where one of the characters has chosen not to have children, I had all these women writing to me saying, I didn't know I had permission not to have children. And that is not why I wrote the book, for sure. But suddenly that it showed me that there are people out there who are making choices in their life for other people, for society, for the sense of expectation about what other people think they should be. And I, and I think we see this a lot in mental health. It's how can you show up for yourself? How can you own your own voice? And what, what is the impact of owning your own voice? Will you have to walk away from a career? Will you have to sit down with your parents and gently say, uh, actually, you know what? I have different sexual orientation to the one you thought I had. Are you going to have to walk away from your partner? Are you going to have to finally say to yourself, I I want to have a baby or I don't want to have a baby. You know, what, what are the, what's the impact of you living authentically? Because it's one thing to be very sad about the life you have. And it's quite another to persist in that sadness because you're very scared to make a different choice and be authentic. And I know that because I've been there. I was an investment banker for 10 years. I wasn't very good at it. I think that's part of the problem. Uh, but I'm not going to give you any of my money. I'm just going to tell you that. Don't. My honor and respect, and I'm not giving you any money. Yeah. No, I, I loved elements of it. And as I say, it was an intellectually very stimulating career. But there is more to life than that. I want folks to understand what does it mean and I think this is very important. What does it mean to have a voice? What is even the word? You know, when I watch the voice, people are singing, <laughs> they're trying to mm -hmm. succeed. You know, the voice is more uh, something that I don't think of when I hear that word. And I'm wondering what it is you mean by that. I think it's the capacity to ask for what you need. And it may well be that you need to perform, that actually... For some people, it's about how do I find that expression for myself? Is it going to be through football, through photography, through baking, through my relationships? But for a lot of people, it's they're already in relationships, but they don't know how to get their needs met. And that's because they haven't really heard the voice within. They haven't really paid attention to the inner child or the inner voice that's trapped that says, I, I need for you to try and do some things differently. I need for you to ask for better sex or for more connection or less connection. How, how do I even articulate that to the other person if I haven't really heard myself? And, you know, one of my other novels, the one that actually is set in India and I'm really hoping could be made into a film at the moment. I'm certainly working on a screenplay for that. It's about a woman who is grieving the, the death of her husband and she goes to India to find out what happened to him. But along the way, what she discovers is a whole subset of Indian life, women trapped in brothels, women trafficked into brothels who have no voice. And so this woman who goes to India thinking that her need is to get closure on her relationship with her husband and to heal some pain around that, really discovers that actually what her voice is about, her purpose is, is helping other women and giving them a chance to shine and giving them a chance at freedom. And that actually her finding her voice is actually about giving voice to other people. So I think for different people, finding your voice will mean different things. But the important thing is that you give yourself permission to try to find out what that is. I have a number of questions related to this. What I think you're talking about is authenticity to myself. Mm 
and responding to the truth that is inside me about what, who I am meant to be and what really brings me joy that comes from the inside out, if you will. And I'm paraphrasing. But I, I did want to say, you know, it's very hard, especially for the men and women, but women in particular who experience profound betrayal, to have a voice. And what I mean by that is when you're in a relationship with an addict, they give you little pieces of information. They hint at the possibility of a relationship. Sometimes there are good moments that they get hopeful for, and then the bad tend to follow. I think the thing that I say to a lot of the women that I work with is it, that it's, it's kind of like an adaptation. They went into the relationships thinking, oh, it's going to be this. And then slowly but surely they get kind of ground down by infidelity, by lies, by secrets, by manipulation and the lack of trust. And how I guess I think one of the things I, the women I work with struggle with is uh, I don't even know how to have a voice for myself because the thing that brought me joy in this situation was connection. And the further into the relationship I go, the realize the more I realize how disconnected I am. And I guess that's just what I have to adapt to. So how does someone have a voice in a relationship that is very painful, where they're trying to kind of get the attention of the person they're involved with, which of course is all focused on the other person? And that is a big question. How do you how do you hold on to your own voice when there's so much emphasis for women in particular to focus on that that man or woman that they love or they have a connection to and holding on to them and all of that? I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. I would say that it's like multi-dimensional chess because for sure you want to feel that your priority is yourself. But you don't want to do that to such an extent that you end up operating in a silo or living on your own for the rest of your life, because that is the delicate balance in all relationships, even ones that where addiction doesn't feature, that actually it is, how do I retain a sense of me whilst celebrating and nourishing the we? Because obviously a couple creates the couple and it's two people coming together. But as you say, what often happens is that one of those people gets drowned out and those needs don't get met. And what you then end up often needing to deal with is that shattered self-esteem that has got to the point where someone thinks, I don't even deserve this. In fact, this min these breadcrumbs that I'm fed every so often. And, and don't forget, there is in many cases that the dynamic is very much that there was this amazing relationship in the very beginning, whether you want to use the sort of Instagram love uh, jargon of love bombing, or whether you just recognize that it's how many addicts operate and it's how many narcissists operate, that actually you get a lot of love in the beginning. And the, per the other person doesn't have to be a woman, could be a, could be a man. And it, obviously it happens in right. same-sex relationships as well. Uh, that there is a sense of this is incredible. I am finally seen. I feel like I do have my voice. I say, oh, it's my birthday next week. And suddenly, you know, I get treated. So some, somebody heard me. Somebody heard me mm -hmm. saying it was my birthday next week. And that's incredibly seductive. And why would it not be? Because that is our template from birth. You know, we come into this world physically joined to another human being. So that's our template. Could we have that level of connection all over again? I don't ever want to let you go. And, and the rest of your life is, is really about coming to terms with the fact that you'll never be able to have that level of connection with another human being ever again, because it's fundamentally unhealthy, because it implies that you're about two days old. But if you've got to the point where you had that love bombing, the secret is to remember mm, that was then. I really need to focus on how the relationship is now. Are my needs being met? Am I fulfilled? Am I respected? Am I showing up for myself? Am I respecting myself? Uh, there was some fascinating research by Ashley Madison, the married dating website people. Yes. But they did some fucking research around non-monogamy. And the idea that, I mean, this is a slightly different topic, which is, you know, whether monogamy is an outdated model. But the one thing that did come out from this research was this sense, particularly for women, which is a recognition that maybe there is a, an increased understanding that it is not appropriate to expect one person to meet all of my needs for the rest of my life. 
And I think that's a really important thing because when you asked me, you know, how can you be in this relationship when it's all about the other person? Well, that's when you have to start being a bit selfish and say, well, what, what are my needs? And, and are they being met by this person? And if not all of them are, does that matter? You know, maybe, maybe there are certain needs that I could outsource, if to, to put it mildly. And, and that might be where, you know, a situation like Ashley Madison occurs. But more fundamentally, how realistic is it that I put all of my attention and all of my energy onto this one person? Because at that moment, that's your responsibility. If you're the one that's done that, this is the sort of slightly counterintuitive thing that I talk about in my TED talk is you might have been betrayed. Your partner might have been the one who was unfaithful. But what was how did you show up in that relationship? This isn't victim blaming here. I, I want to be really explicit about this. This is not about saying it's your fault that your partner cheated on you. Not in any shape or form. But it is about saying, how did you show up? Did you say, I really need a date night every week. I would really love it if you helped with the kids. Is there any chance that you could do that thing with your mother and don't always leave it to me? I love it when you hold my hand. I really like it when we clean our teeth. It's interesting because these are such little things to me. You know, can you help with mom? Could you help with the kids? I need to spend more time with you. I was thinking that this would be a much larger picture in a relationship. What you're talking about is the small moments that make me feel that my needs are being met. And maybe that is what love really is, rather than this big, you know, celebration of limerence. And, you know, you're the, I have to tell every friend I've ever met about you because you're so amazing that that is almost like a teaser for something that really doesn't get followed through on because that's not a real relationship. And a real relationship is those little moments. And I do want to say what's interesting is that the people I work with who are having affairs, and there are many of them, they think they're comparing apples to apples. But the thing is, when you're an affair partner, you don't have to do the dishes. You don't have to do the laundry. You don't have to be responsible to mom. And there's a freedom that seems to come with those affairs that keeps the people I work with more attracted to that and saying, oh, maybe I want to be with that person. But what they don't realize is that isn't realistic. What they have with that person is nothing like the day-to-day -day demands and requests of a, of a meaningful long-term partner, because it is those little pieces that make up a meaningful relationship. Um, and I appreciate your mentioning that. I was listening to an interview, and I can't remember the context, but a, a lady who had recently been bereaved said, I used to have someone to do something with. Now, I don't have anyone to do nothing with. And I think that goes to the heart of what many people treasure about perhaps long-term relationships, which is the way in which or as, my, as one of my teachers once said, you can have more fun sharpening a pencil with someone you love than doing anything wild and hilarious. That actually it is about the daily intimacies that speak of your connection. And I'm very glad that you spoke about the fact that what a lot of people really long for, what they're really craving is connection. Because I work with people who often say to me, Am I allowed that? Am I not being too needy, but too demanding? Mm. If I say to him or to her, I, I really want you to, to connect to me, am I going to push them away because I'm too needy? Well, a need for connection is, is a, almost a fundamental human right, really. That's why you know we place babies on mother's breasts at the very beginning. It's why holding hands is a sign of, of intimacy. And to your earlier point about the small details as opposed to the big sort of liminal, big drama. I think, you know, we've been done a disservice by all of these fairy tales that talk about, you know, the big wedding, Cinderella meeting Prince Charming, everyone living happily ever after. It's, it's common knowledge now that that's not the end. That's actually the beginning of your relationship is when you have your civil partnership or the big, you know, the big... I do in front of all of your family and friends. That's the moment when the hard work begins because it is quite hard to stay committed to someone when you've just had a row over the parking space in the supermarket. 
but my clients don't end up talking about a row in the supermarket. What they end up talking about, and I want to use some of their language because I think this is helpful. And we have to talk a little about the addictions and why you're there. But many of the partners will say, you ruined my whole life. How could you love me and do these other things too? They'll say, I became someone I never meant to be because I was working so hard to try to get you back in the way that I thought we did have, that uh, now I've turned into someone who's nagging and yelling and, and being devaluing and, and begging and all of this into relationship to this acting out. And so, you know, when you talk about an isolated incident of, of broken needs, broken attachment, broken betrayal, with the clients I work with, both male and female who are involved with sex addicts, they have a consistent experience of being betrayed, not once, but very, very regularly. And I wonder if you can say, like, how do you hold on to yourself in a life where there's constant disappointment? And not only that, maybe, but, but the idea that it's gotten better and then it isn't. And I do much more accommodating than I do finding myself because I'm always reacting to these situations rather than being able to come forward with what's true for me. Was, was that a question? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there because the, the earlier comment that you made was about this sense of, you know, how could you do this to me? How could you say you love me and then do this to me? Well, the problem is that in a way, I'm going to quote Ashley Madison again, because they, they are you know, the people who know a lot about relationships on the side, as it were, primary and secondary relationships. But a very large proportion of people who have affairs have no interest in destroying their primary relationship, their marriage or their civil partnership. That is not what the affair is about. The affair is also not about sex, or it's not just about sex. It's about the version of themselves that gets to show up in the affair, one that is maybe adored, seen, uh, yeah, maybe more potent, maybe more desired, uh, maybe more accomplished, freer, more fun. And of course, when you end up having a conversation after the infidelity and, and the betrayer is saying all of this, in effect, you know, I, I'm, I kind of feel I I'm a nicer person in the other relationship. Their partner will very often say, "What do you think I was enjoying this? Do you think I enjoy having my, you know, being up to my knees in dirty nappies and juggling my, you know, incredibly important presentation while taking your parents to not having my needs met." Yeah, I, I was getting, but but you you chose to deal with that in the way that you chose to deal with that. So I really stress for the for the person who's sitting there thinking, why why has my partner done this, and how can they say that they love me? Um, because it's true. Because their partner actually does still love them and does still, on some level, like the life that they have, and also is really, really hurting in their own way and, and can't handle the pain of connection and vulnerability. And that's what's so complicated about relationships. You can't really have the connection that you seek with another person unless you're really vulnerable. And what we know from addicts in particular is that vulnerability is the big verboten topic. You, you do not want to let anyone in. You feel ashamed of yourself. You have so much self-loathing, which is why you couldn't construct this persona of, you know, fantastic Mr. Nice Guy or really, you know, everybody's best friend. I'm, you know, the great daughter-in-law. I'm the great boss, whatever it might be, because inside I feel like shit. Pardon my French. I feel worthless. I, I just actually feel the very opposite of all of this. So Lucy, let me say to you that it's very hard for me to begin to recover from that. And much of the treatment we do is seeking integrity is in part helping men in, in my arena, we work with men beginning to hold on to and discover that voice where, where it needs to go as opposed to their addictive behavior. And then they go home and they have a spouse who's absolutely furious and does, and just says, I don't care what you want. I don't care how you do it. Now you owe me. Now it's my turn. And so there's this conflict with addicts, I, in my experience in relationships, trying to seek their voice, seek their stability. They're returning to the relationship with better skills and the hope that it will get better. And then they say to me, but I know when I'm going home, I'm not going to meet any of that. And of course, that leads into, well, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And one of the things we tell addicts is that you've put too much focus on your relationship 
Now you can't because you have a partner who's furious and unhappy with you. You're going to have to lean out toward other recovering people and therapy in order to stabilize yourself. But you lose your best friend. You lose the person that you always turn to first. And that is a difficult dilemma, which is going outside to get my needs for a period of time because I cannot get affirmed and supported within my relationship. And then when I do, I don't feel like I have the same connection with all these other people that I do at home. So you definitely need to get your clients to watch my TED Talk. <laughs> um, what is your TED Talk called, by the way? So the TED Talk is called Infidelity to Stay or Go. Infidelity to Stay or Go. And it really poses this dilemma, or rather that's the jumping off point of, you know, betrayal has been uncovered. What do we now do? And what I'm really saying is it is the couple's responsibility to work on this, that actually, and in a way, you need to work individually as well as together. Because for sure, if you are the one that has said, I've betrayed you on multiple occasions, I think I'm a sex addict, or I have other addictions or whatever the picture is, uh, and the other person is is furious and broken, and you, you know that that is what you're going to be on the receiving end of, but hopefully not for the rest of your life. And at some point, if the couple is to survive, then both people do have to, and I would argue that the betrayer has you know quite a lot of spade work to do in order to repair the damage. But the other person, even if your partner is 99% responsible for the mess that you are now currently wading through and the heartbreak, that still leaves 1% for you to look at and own and work on. Uh, Because as I say, a couple creates the couple. That actually, it may well be that you are better off apart. What you said about the betrayer having to do some spade work, which is not a term we use here in the States, by the way, when you say that the person who's caused the pain has a lot of work to do on themselves and the relationship before they can possibly restore the deeper connection, I think the spouses, when they're in a lot of pain, they, they're not ready to look at their 1%. They're not interested in their 1%. They're looking at how you ruined my life. That's absolutely correct. But nevertheless, at some point, there has to be some recognition that if we're going to work on this as a couple, we need to work out, you know, what, what did lead our relationship to go off track? What, what did leave us vulnerable to infidelity? If I can honestly say that I was there for you as a loving and committed and supportive partner in the way that I would love you to be for me, then we're going to be we're going to be able to get through this and sex addiction is a very interesting dimension of that i just i will just say this it because you you mentioned it earlier that you know if you're the partner of someone who's a sex addict and you're on the receiving end of multiple betrayals or you've been on the receiving end of a betrayal and lots of repair work and lots of protestations that this will never happen again and then it does right and then it does again and then it does again then you need to ask yourself, why am I staying? Why am I staying in, with someone who is constantly hurting me, where the care is inconsistent, where they are reliably unreliable? Yes, I love it. I wrote a book called Pro-Dependence, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but I've completely and utterly gone up and against codependency. And I don't think, I think it's been a quite a cruel, unnecessary way of looking at families. And perhaps I'll send you the book at some point. But um, one of the things that I write about that I think is important that it came out of this work is that I've had, and we'll just use a heterosexual model. I've had women say, he's had sex with 300 people. He spent $75,000 on his affair partners, on his, you know, the ones who have resources for that, on his affair partners, on his sex workers. How could I ever be responsible for that level of insanity? Is there anything I could have that ever, you know, an affair? Okay, maybe. But the degree to which I've been betrayed and violated, how could I ever have any part in that? And it is, they feel violated. When someone says, well, look at, let's look at your part because they think, well, that, that's whatever my part might be, it's so much less crazy 
than what happened to me. So I wanted to toss that to you because the comparison, you know, we're talking about an alcoholic or someone who had an affair. We're talking about years or decades of behavior that I don't think anyone other than the person who's doing it could really be at fault for. How do you kind of square that, if you will? I, I would go back, I guess, I would go back to that analogy of sort of four-dimensional chess, which is that I, I think you're right, that I think there are certain situations where you could, again, say that it's 99% the other person. And the chances are, if the addict had been married to Flossie instead of Rosie, he would have done exactly the same. So there's the common thread is the sex right. addict. It's not really Rosie and it's not really Flossie. However, there was a moment where the sex addict was about to get together with Camilla and Camilla had a sense that this guy was reliably unreliable, that they were love bombing and then going cold. And very early on in their relationship, Camilla said, I'm not interested in someone like you. Way before the sex addict became florid, way before the sex addict was able to to kind of live the life that they wanted. And again, so this isn't to blame Flossie or Rosie at all, but what was that relationship like? Because the couple creates the couple. What, what do we unwittingly enable because of our own baggage, because of our own maybe shaky sense of self-esteem or our own distractions, our own preoccupations? Well, you would say enable and I would say adapt. You know, I give up my, you know, I come to a relationship having my own needs, my own dreams, my only sense of self. And then slowly, if I've gone through that limerence, that early flowering, and I'm looking to get that back, so many of the people I work with will say, well, but if I'd just done this, if I'd just been that, if I'd just been thinner or more attractive or had more sex, or they wouldn't have done all of this. So they're already assigning themselves blame, if you will. And I think that's what comes up as a challenge. Far more blame than they ought to be uh, taking on board, uh, for sure. But that's why, again, it's very, it's very hard to say this is what happens in every single case of betrayal, particularly to do with addicts, because there will be variations mm-hmm. on a theme around the fact of, yeah, how, how much did I get ground down? How much did I learn to hide my needs or even believe that they weren't acceptable, that they were, it wasn't permissible for me to seek getting my needs met? Well, but let's look at reality, Lucy. I, I have three children and I have two jobs and I'm just, because I think, and I want to say this to you, that one of the reasons we do this, I do this podcast is for all of the people and the majority of the people who will never make it to therapy, who can't afford the time or the energy to read a self-help book, who will never um, even consider a 12-step program. You know, they don't have the resources or even the interest in self-development. And that is an audience that I'm, that I'm very interested in speaking to. So I'm wondering for the person who doesn't have any ability or time or resources to do all of these things, and they are dependent, I guess that's the word I was thinking, they, they can't live their lives authentically. They can't choose to follow their own dreams and beliefs because they are, quote unquote, stuck in the situation where they need that person to survive. And so that is, I think, more often the case than the people we see, because we see the people who are privileged and have the ability to do this work, not the ones who are kind of stuck in it. And this is putting you in a bit of a trap. But you said it, can I just pick you up on what you said there, that that sense of I, I need to stay because I can't survive without this person. Now, I'm not quite sure what you meant by that. Did you mean from a financial point of view or did you mean from a psychological point of view? Yeah. I mean, I need someone to pay the bills and I need someone to help me with the kids and I need, you know, my life I, depends on this. How do they find their authenticity and their voice in a situation that they they can't really even pull away from um, because of the situation that they're in? Well, I think that's a very interesting thing. And l- let's be clear, if there's violence or if there's abuse in any shape or form, we've got to encourage people to get out irrespective of whether they think they'll survive or not. I mean, you know, there are resources in the UK and there are resources, I'm sure, in the States, and it's a tough call. And it's about creating your network around you and making sure that you're safe 
and putting yourself first, which is a really hard thing to do when you've been ground down so much that you don't believe that you deserve anything. But there are some people who do decide to stay, and this is not to judge them. So if they are able to say to themselves, this is why I'm staying. I'm staying because I need someone to pay the bills. I'm staying because, for example, maybe I came from a broken home or I know my partner came from a broken home and I do not want my kids to be from a broken home. That's the choice I'm making. If you can make your peace with the choices that you're making, then that is a positive step. My, You're not a victim of circumstance. That's exactly, it is about, and that's the whole thing about showing up authentically. However, of course, you and I will have worked with the children of those parents further down the line. And invariably, they always say, mom and dad were at each other's throats. I really wish they'd separated when I was five or 10 or 15. You know, they stayed for us and I feel the burden of that. And I resent them for that. And, you know, then they can end up coming to see people like you and me for therapy. But let's be clear. It is tough being human. It is tough being in relation to another human being. And I would always want to lean on the side of compassion and understanding. You know, the sex addict, and this is where I think the problem in in the UK comes from trying to understand sex addiction is that it is very much portrayed as, you know, an incredibly selfish way of operating. And, And there's no attempt to have compassion or understanding for why the person might be behaving in that way. And if you can do that and be mindful of your own needs, you stand a really good chance of the relationship surviving. But if your needs are being routinely denigrated and trampled on, then you have a choice. So my my big thing is you can only make good choices for yourself if you know yourself well. If you know that you're the kind of person that needs to stay with someone to pay the bills, that's fine. There may be a whole lot of stuff in your backstory as to why that's important. And I'm not here to judge that. But if you discover that actually your fear of having no money or not having anywhere to live or whatever comes from things in your childhood that are no longer relevant and can no longer hurt you, then you know different things about yourself. And you can make different choices. You don't, you're no longer operating from a position of fear. You're no longer operating from, from that sense. I I love this concept because what you're saying is I may never, I may not be able to change my circumstances, but I can change how I view them, that I can view them as a choice that I'm making because for these reasons, and some of them go back to the past and some of them are present, but I am not a victim of these circumstances because I'm making a choice to be here, whether it's the happiest choice or it's not the happiest choice. It's one that I need to make and it's not happening to me. Yes. And let's be clear. You could you could say, and I th- I really do advise people to do this a lot as well. This is the choice I'm making for now. I might make a different choice, and now I've started to have the conversation with myself. I wonder what online resources I could. I might listen to Lucy's TED talk. I might listen to Robert's podcast. I might I might not be able to afford therapy, but I'm going to start paying attention to things like my self-growth? What, what's out there on Instagram? What's out there on, on YouTube that I could learn about myself and what I need and, and maybe what things I need to do to myself to maybe improve my self-esteem a little bit later. And you know what? I promise myself that in a year's time, I'll ask myself this question again. And then maybe in five years time, when the kids are a bit older and that there's going to come a time when the kids are going to leave home, what am I going to do then? Will will it be too late for me to leave? You know, I really value this in terms of the strong encouragement that we give to the betrayed to become a part of some group. And we give away, for example, um, at no cost, maybe 11 groups a week where I have therapists who are willing to volunteer their time to moderate spaces that's simply where a, a betrayed person can come forward and say, this happened to me, and now it's been a year later or this just happened to me. And so it's not just about self-education, it's also, which is essential. Well, it is about self-education, but it's about hearing it through the voices of other people who've been there. 
And you can do that online for absolutely free. And I think you're right that there are so many resources we have to learn and grow that it's nice to go to therapy, but the educational piece, the understanding, in some ways, the forgiveness of myself can come through the, the things I'm thinking and learning about. They don't necessarily need to come from years of psychotherapy. I did want to clarify a couple of things you said, because some of them will, a couple of things will uh, send uh, my betrayed partner spinning. And one of them is non-monogamy, because you mentioned that. And of course, every person who's been betrayed has been living with non-monogamy, whether they wanted it or they didn't. And in my world, I think the biggest issue would be, unless someone has religious or other beliefs about this, that, that the issue for them is the lack of trust. You know, if you, I often say to patients, listen, if you want to go see a sex worker, it's perfectly fine with me. I have no problem with that. But just go after your, ask your wife first. And if it's okay with her, then it's okay with me. And I think one of the biggest challenges that I see is, and I bring this back to monogamy, is I might never want non-monogamy. I might be okay with it. But what's more important to me is please tell me what my life is about. Number one thing my partners want beyond anything is honesty. For sure. And I'd like, I'm glad you asked me to clarify that. I mean, there are a couple of things to say. I think, I think it also depends on your age. I think Gen Zers are now much more open, if that's a pardon the pun, to talking about things like uh, what's commonly being discussed now is disclosed non-monogamy, where everybody is aware of what's going on, that it isn't about subterfuge. It's not about secrecy. And you know, and there are couples contracts and that I think actually Madison have done something on this as well. But you, what you're talking about is non-monogamy that is a secret. And that's a completely different ballgame. That, that's not really, I'm certainly not advocating that in any way. It's, it's a sense that some couples going forward do end up coming to an agreement that disclosed non-monogamy might need to be a part of this. I mean, funnily enough, there was something in, um, I think it was Jada Pinkett Smith has given an interview in the last few days about her, what one might have said, unconventional uh, relationship with Will Smith, whereby they've clearly not really been together. And obviously we can all read between the lines as to what she's really saying, but for seven years, and yet they're still living in the same house. And um, what I think that speaks to is the way in which different couples reach different accommodations as to what is going to be appropriate. And what is very clear is that increasingly, not least because betrayal and infidelity can often really rock a person's world, subsequent to that, couples make different choices. And they may very well say, okay, if you're doing that, then I want to have permission to do something very similar but it is going to be above board. I want to avoid the secrecy. I don't want the subterfuge because that's the thing that really crucifies the relationship. But if your preference is monogamy and your dream is long-term commitment with one person, you've got to fight for that. If that's your preference and if that is not what you're getting in your relationship, then you have to make a choice. Well, and I want to, again, just challenge the fact that if I'm an addict, you know, give me a hand and I'll take an arm, which is that I think healthy, healthy people who are the addiction is not present may be able to make those kinds of decisions. But as an addict, if you tell me, well, we can negotiate non-monogamy, then I'm going to think, how many other hundreds of people can I have sex with? Rather than keeping that agreement, because addicts are often not able to, you know, I can't just drink a little bit. I can't just do a little bit of gambling. And in the same way, I can't just... But that's exactly, that is exactly my, my point, really. In a way, I'm glad you kind of then switched it to a different type of addiction because obviously sex is a very healthy part of normal life and drinking loads of alcohol isn't. But if, you, if you're in a situation where we're not talking about sex addiction, but we're actually talking about alcoholism or, or gambling or whatever, if your partner persists in that behavior you have a choice. The other person has the choice. Do I stay with a person who is great 50% of the time and then horrendous and I'm, I'm left worrying about them 100% of the time? Or do I want to walk away? And it's a really tough love dilemma. 
And which goes back to our earlier point of view, what if you feel you don't have any options? And it takes time. It's not something that you, a decision made in the heat of the moment. Sadly not. Absolutely. It's very much around, okay, I've, I've now, the first time it happens, that's all really useful information. How do I respond? Tenth time it happens. I mean, it goes back to that mantra of, you know, hurt me once, more fool you. Hurt me twice, more fool me. And, and at what stage do you walk away and say, but I need to treat myself. So this goes back to the, it goes back to the first thing you asked me about, which is your voice. Can you hear your own voice saying, treat me with more respect, treat me with more kindness, treat me with more compassion. How are we going to get through this? Almost have a dialogue with yourself if you are the betrayed person. How are we, the, the kind of inner and outer you, going to get through this? What do we need? What do we need on an hourly basis? What do we need on a daily basis? Don't try and you know, run before you can walk. Let's take baby steps. And at some point, we will come to a decision and we might stay. We might stay with that alcoholic or that gambler or that sex addict for the rest of our lives for reasons that are really powerful and important to us. And it's nobody else's business and it's nobody else's concern. If, however, I'm beginning to feel that my, I'm being diminished on a daily basis, that I am being crushed, that I am a shadow of my former self, at what point do I have to listen to those inner cries and take action? As we move along, I, I want to tie this together in a way that I think is succinct and useful for both of us, which is a lot of the focus of what you have talked around is sex addiction. But, but you're interested in this. You work in this field. Why in the world would you pick and what is your interest in this whole concept of sex addiction? Because you are known in the UK as one of the experts in this arena. Why that? What do you see? How do you feel you're able to help? I mean, anything you can throw into that. Uh, arena, I think would be useful. Funnily enough, I don't ever really see myself as the expert, even though you're right. I've written a lot about it and I work with a lot of... Lucy, that makes you an expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually for me, it goes back more to that very fundamental thing of helping other people thrive. And maybe that's because when I was at my lowest, I had that helping hand from a therapist who, you know, I would go in every single week complaining about my job. And then at one point I went in saying, you know, the bank, they've just announced the bank's going to be taken over. Hopefully I'm going to be made redundant. And she said, let's be clear. What kind of job is it? Right, right. Redundant, by the way, means fired in case some of you are not aware of that term. Well, fired, but with a stonking good payoff. Um, <laughs> and and uh, in the end, that isn't what happened. In the end, I didn't get uh, made redundant. I was offered a job at the new entity. And that's when I knew, no, this is, uh, but I'd already resigned by that point. Um, and I think it's about the connection that I really needed in that moment. It was a strange career. A lot of people could have turned around and said, as many people have done subsequently, oh, you know, you're a banker, you, you don't deserve to be to have any compassion, you're all very venal. It's like, no, actually, I needed some kind of help. I needed some kind of support and guidance out of the mess. And that, I think, is where I come from. I, I always believe that whatever the, let's call it the relationship crime, whatever the dilemma, you always need to feel that you've got someone batting for you, to use a cricket analogy. Um, and I'm that person sometimes for people who feel like they haven't got anyone else to talk to. They can't talk to their siblings. They certainly can't talk to their partner. Their parents are dead. All their friends are busy. Who are they going to talk to? And until they learn how to talk to themselves and hear that voice within, they might need to talk to someone like me. I'm going to stand alongside them while they have that inner dialogue, I think. I'm, I'm making sure that they're not doing it on their own. So I just want to say before we stop that Lucy in some ways is a really good parent. 
because she's helping people find their own voice, become who they are, and get the pieces of focus and attention and support that they may not have gotten when they learn to adapt early in life. And she is encouraging them to not just thrive, but thrive through getting an attention on focus on their own needs, which may be something they've never done before. And that's what a good parent does. So good on you. Um, we appreciate that. Yeah. And I guess my um, ultimate goal is to do myself out of a job. You know, I want people to, to leave me, to, to let go of me and thrive on their own. And that's a good therapist, by the way. We work toward your leaving, not your toward your staying. Let, let me just tell you a little bit about Lucy before we stop. She has written some wonderful, entertaining, engaging books. And I just quickly want to say of the fiction she's written, and of course, this is so related to what we're talking about. She said she wrote it well. She's written a book called Something I'm Not. She's written a book called Invisible Threads. And I love this particular book, Hungry for Love. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful book. And then she's actually written a workbook and something that is nonfiction for those of us dealing with relationship struggles, some at the highest level, which is called Happy Relationships at Home, Work, and Play. And Lucy, it is such an honor. I told you I was a little intimidated by you, and I'm not intimidated by many people. Um, but I looked at your resume, and I thought, this woman is amazing and scary because she's got it together in ways that I think uh, that, that, that may not be true, but from this distance seem very meaningful. So let me ask you before we stop, how can people reach you? How can they find your books? Tell me more about that. Uh, the books are available on all good Amazons and uh, bookshops here in the UK, which is great. I'm sure they would post around the world. And also if you're in India, if you're in Brazil, Portugal, you know, there are places where those books have been translated as well, which is great. Uh, even China. Happy Relationships is hopefully prescribed reading in China. <laughs> no, I joke. I don't think it is, but it, but it ought to be. And then people can check me out on uh, com, But also I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, the Lucy Beresford one. Just get in touch. We'd be lovely to hear from you. And your podcast. Can you mention your podcast? And my little podcast, which is called On the Couch, but it looks at politics through the lens of psychology. So if you're a bit of a British political geek, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's a huge subset of your audience. Uh, do check that out on Spotify and all good other streamers too. Thank you, Lucy. And I hope that we get a chance to come back and speak more about this process because you and the last speaker I've had are really talking about empowering partners and people who have been wounded to really to find their own voice and way forward. And it brings me great joy to hear people talking about the positive outcomes that can be rather than the pain and the unhappiness and the struggle. And so thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Sex, Love, and addiction. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.